welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? Coming at you for another knock-on podcast. Sorry I've been away, but, you know, it's September or August. August or September, it's a wild card. I might be able to do a podcast. I might not. So don't take it personally. It's just hunting season. You do the same to me. You know you would. Um, So for this podcast, what I did was I just made a post on Instagram and said, what podcast questions do you have? And if you're a podcast listener and you don't have Instagram, you're probably missing out because that's where I spend a lot of my time. I I like Instagram. It's easy. It's quick. I can pop in, pop out. I can post other places from there. So even if you're not going to be an Instagrammer, you can at least be an Insta watcher. So get an Instagram account. They're easy to set up. Go to Knock On TV and then click the follow button and then you're following. And then make sure your uh, notifications are on. I don't post overly excessively, so you won't be getting nagged out too much. But I do post every day or try to unless I'm remote and you'll get notified if there's live feeds because sometimes I do those too. It just depends on the year. If I'm in the target range... I'll just go live if I'm in the backyard. Sometimes I go live. Packing gear might go live. Sometimes on a recovery of a cool animal, if I have a signal, which I really haven't yet this year, um, I'll go live. And you want to know when that is. You'll need your notifications on. Otherwise, um, yeah, that's where I make a lot of my posts like this one. So if you want to get involved, make sure you go there and get an account and follow that'd be important so i don't know where to start how about i start with the very first person to ask a question and it's jasm underscore lee asking any info on the sherlock carbonics site and yeah everybody was liking that comment you know what if i had the answer to that question i could probably be doing tarot card readings so um it's hard to say i know that from what i've been told there was an original shipment that came um i guess they got held up in customs originally they were trying to shoot for a date this summer um i guess that container got held up somehow they're waiting for the container to get in they're doing working on assembly or what whatnot so That's all I know. Believe me, I've had my personal ones on order for a long time too. So um, I'm itching at the itching at the the bit right now. So I really want to have those, especially for this upcoming target season. You know, as most of you know, uh, first December really is kind of when I start to get going on target bows and stuff. So yeah, I would love to have a new site by then so i'm not having to use the ones that i've had forever on my hunting bow right now i'm shooting a site that i think is 
getting close to 20 years old. Um, it's a super old Sherlock, but it's uh, been so reliable. So I just keep going with it. But um, I would love to get a new one, no doubt about it. Uh, next question here, <laughs> BLB8698, you're always quick. Warm weather whitetail tactics. So, all right, I'm, I am I did shoot a whitetail uh, last week in Montana. Um, so, and I did also spend some time trying for either whitetails or mule deer in Montana, in eastern Montana, um, for their opener. They opened, I think, on the 7th. Um, and I was really focused on um, clovers and alfalfas, uh, really just trying to do my best to, to be in that, those green plots and work on a little bit of that early pattern. Now, as velvet comes off and as these, these bucks get later into September, they're going to start to change pretty rapidly. And honestly, it gets to be a little bit tough. Um, I'm a big advocate on if I have a pattern, then I try to strike. If I really don't have a pattern, I'm pretty hesitant to intrude on potential areas where I feel like those animals are living, but I don't really have a super strong game plan in order to strike. Um, so for example, here in my home state of Iowa, I do have trail cams out. Trail cams are the key right now. Um, they're going to help you build a pattern. Obviously, if you can take advantage of the ones that use a mobile service and shoot you text to your phone, you're going to do a lot less imprinting. In other words, you're going to be putting a lot less sign down or sent down in those areas. I feel like if you're someone who is active on a farm daily, then you can get away with that daily activity. But if you're someone who has permission on a place and maybe you go out there, you know, you kind of go out there on your weekends off or whatever, you really need to be um, careful at going into those areas that are very invasive and will potentially bump those more mature animals out of that area just because of that pressure. Um, a lot of times it doesn't take very much, so you have to be cautious. Uh, but this time of year, a food source or a water source are very, very good places to try to have some observation and try to build a pattern. Other than that, um, being too invasive on a bedding area right now could be troublesome, but being in an interception area could potentially have value. But just keep in mind, you really need to weigh out how much you're going to be able to put into that stand. So every time you go in or out of a location, you are treading essentially treading on thin ice and that thin ice is them being able to determine that a human is coming and going in that core area of theirs. So what I like to do is if I know that my time's limited, for example, if it's not daylight savings yet and you know that you can get into a stand for an hour and a half um, after work, you can shoot out and get in the stand for a little bit, or, you know, maybe you're able to start work a little late and you're able to get in the stand for an hour or two in the morning, then 
finding those transition areas where essentially you're you're taking a long shot, but you're taking a long shot that has safety. You have the safety net of not being in a place where as you come or go, you're right on top of them, which is what happens if you're hunting a food source or if you're hunting bedding. You know, if you're hunting a food source and obviously, you know, you're there till it gets dark, they're coming there closer to dark, uh, especially now as that moon's starting to come up, the full moon's starting to, to, to come up here, um, you're going to find that as that later and later movement is happening and you're on that food source, well, if it gets too dark to shoot, but you're in the process of packing up and getting out, but yet those animals are just now getting to that food source, but it's a little too dark to shoot, but it, you know, but... Uh, but they are there and you have to get out, then you're kind of in a bad position of now you're going to let them know, hey, there's some type of a, a human presence here. Um, and in those cases, if you are hunting the early season, a couple pointers I can give you is I'm a big advocate of what I refer to as bumping. So when I hunted in Montana, I found a local rancher that would be able to drive out and get me out of my stand after dark. So it worked out really, really well. There was always animals around, but they were being bumped out by this farm vehicle coming out versus being bumped out by me having to walk out of my blind or walk out of my stand and kind of make everything aware of my presence. The other thing that I did, um, which I think was a very, very cool uh, tactic, and I did a little educational segment on it, was... Um, we actually went out, did some scouting, found some sign where some deer were entering this really big alfalfa field in the far back corner of it. It was kind of right beneath this rise where if you were spotting it from the closest road, you wouldn't be able to see this indention in the terrain and it was hard to see. But we ended up setting up a blind there and I put up a bale blind. Um, and then as we hunted it that night, we, we came dangerously close to getting a shot at a really good muley and we had to get out. So, um, you know, the, the farmer kind of told me, you know, I don't want to have to drive all around out here to try to find where you are. So what I did was I actually took my nocturnal knock, pulled it out of one of my arrows, uh, push it on my string so that it would light up and then I just stuck this nocturnal knock in the hay bale and I told him just you know we're going to be where that green light is so he was able to get out there to us and then in the morning when we went in we could easily see that small green light and uh, we were able to get in the blind as the sun came up there was actually like five muleys uh, within about 150 yards of us uh, once the sun came up and they were able to do their pattern. So we were able to just get in, get out, worked really awesome. But follow those tips for, you know, essentially warm weather whitetails. Uh, they're going to be on green. They're going to be on water. Uh, try, if, you, if you're going to be on those spots, try to get a bump if possible. And if you're limited on the amount of time you can hunt then just find the transition areas where your imprint is minimal and i think it's going to improve your chances hopefully help you through that uh let's see behanes 
1911. Uh, going into indoor season, can you talk about some of your favorite setups? So for me, this is very early to indoor season. I'm going to push this question back a little bit. What I can tell you is that this year for the School of Knock, one of the things that I want to do in my series is actually work with getting some of you to set up your first target setup. I want to come up with a video series that's going to let you guys out there make an easy transition from even if all you have is a hunting bow, how to make that a little bit more into a favorable target setup for when you're actually putting in your, you know, your winter reps, you're able to maybe be a little bit more accurate with it and have a, a setup that's a little bit more favorable to quote unquote target archery or target archery scoring. Um, but then I'll also have a series that's going to be specific to, I want to set up my first ever target bow. What do I do? So you'll be able to expect that coming up and uh, I think you're going to be into it. So I'm going to bypass that a little bit, but also give you a little bit of teaser uh, for what's going to be coming this winter once uh, hunting season slows down. Um, thoughts on two-man ladder stands for bow hunting in Oklahoma. Um, honestly, I'm a, I'm a big pro advocate of ladder stands. I like ladder stands. I like them for several reasons. One, I like the safety factor um big time i've i really like um ladder stands especially when you're hunting with your family or you're taking your wife or your kids hunting for the first time i feel like a ladder stand is a very safe option for hunting out of a tree um, a lot of times they're a little bit easier to set up for people who are are new to it um, I hunted out of several ladder stands in Oklahoma myself, as well as blinds, and really, uh, really had good success there. Uh, what I like about the ladder stands is obviously you're able to have four points of contact all the way up to that stand. Um, the double ladder stands, I used those a lot when Sharon and Harry were first getting into hunting out of the tree just so we could be side by side. I feel like even if you're um, hunting solo, if you have a tree that allows that to work, um, it gives you some, some ability to, to be able to move around up there um, and have some comfort. Otherwise, if you're if you don't have a double ladder stand, I use single ladders. Right now I'm actually using some muddy ladder stands. And I'll put the muddy ladder stand up and then I'll put a lock on right um, 90 degrees from where that comes to the tree. So I'll, in other words, if I'm sitting in my ladder stand and my butt's on my seat, I'll put a lock on. Um, directly to my right and I'll put the platform of the lock-on level with where my butt is as the shooter in the stand um, and so if 
that person is filming they're essentially going to be filming directly over your shoulder they are above you so that you know you're able to move and draw back without any obstruction um, and they're also you know you're able to just turn your head up and to the right and talk over your shoulder directly to that person but ladder stands are great they're safe make sure you still use a safety line um, and a bow rope really important and also uh, depending on the ladder stand that you buy, some of them kind of get a little bit cheap on the ratchet straps that they send. Uh, ratchet straps are, are inexpensive, so don't be afraid to throw another one around that just for safety. Um, but overall, I like ladder stands. I think uh, they're a good option as long as you can get them up high enough to where you're still in cover as the hunter. Uh, next question here, TLC Outdoors. How you doing, buddy? Uh, what are your go-to pieces of Sika gear trip after trip? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I guess I'll just walk everyone through. I did a video on my Instagram IGTV, kind of showing my gear loadout. I'm still, I still have that exact same gear. Um, I'm well actually today today exactly I'm one month into when I started and I am still using the exact same gear loadout that I showed in that video but I think one of the most crucial pieces is I've become a huge fan of the core lightweight for the very first layer um, this past week, I was in Montana, got caught in a serious downpour. I mean, it rained inches and inches on us over the course of the day. And I was just moving, pursuing elk. Um, by the time I realized how heavy that rain was coming down, all I had on was I did not pack my rain pants. It was like a flash flood. All I had was a top. Um, I had a, a, a thin, a thin rain top. And so my, the top of me was fine over the course of several hours, um, because I didn't have my hood cinched up real tight. And that was, you know, on my part, uh, you know, from a staying dry point of view, essentially that's user error. I was trying to keep my ears outside of the, the rain system just so that I could hear uh, bugles better so I did have some wicking down my neck and started to get wet underneath um, my pants were just completely soaked all the way um, my socks had pretty much wicked all the way into my Gore-Tex boots so my my I, my boots were essentially completely filled with water but I was just active and moving and once that hunt was finally done and I got in the vehicle I could actually feel the heat just coming off my body and evaporating that whole system out and that core lightweight uh, synthetic base is just so crucial to that system and I know that John Barclow's talked about that several times in the past and I know that the Sitka system so to speak is developed that way for that very first layer to be a wicking layer and getting that off you and starting that evaporation process for being wet um, whether that's from pouring rain or from sweat 
And the next layer is my hex suit. I'm a big advocate of hex. I love it. I feel like continually um, my success versus people that are also in my camp, whether or not people want to put um, hard evidence down or not, I just know that I always wear it. I know that my encounters with animals very close are continual and I, you know, I'm a big believer in it. Um, other than that, for this time of the year, the Apex set is definitely my favorite. I just love the quietness of the Apex. Um, I really like the functionality to it. I've, you know, I've got one set of pants and one top. I've worn them for probably, I don't even know, uh, dozens of hunts, I would say. Um, I've worn those and have had just a ton of success with it. I have um, the Kelvin Light hoodie um, for kind of my next layer. And then I also really like the mountain jacket um, just in case there's some wind. Um, those are really my go-to pieces that, you know, regardless of what system I'm using, those are kind of my go-tos. When it comes to the whitetail side of things, even last year, I went right back to that core lightweight base uh, for the very first layer. And then I actually put like a, a heavyweight um, over the top of that for the extra warmth. And then depending on the application um, and how cold it was, I used... Uh, different systems. Um, the Stratus was awesome. I worked with that a little bit during whitetail season. I also worked with um, that Fanatic Light uh, as well. And then once it got seriously cold in the late season, um, I worked with that the new Fanatic system, uh, which is really, really awesome. But honestly, I can tell you that when it comes to what I wear from Sitka all the time, it's going to be, no matter what, the core lightweight base is always there, always. I love the short gaiters. If you're someone that's taller like me and you feel like you need a little bit more inseam on your pants, um, I like their shorter gaiters. Um, they're not fully waterproof gaiters they're more of a gaiter to protect from stuff falling in your boots um, and they do help a little bit on that early morning when you've got some dew um, I wear those all the time and um, no matter what I always use one of the outer pieces that has the built-in face mask I'm a huge advocate of covering your face I wear face paint all the time to kind of break up what little bit of my face is exposed. Um, but either you can wear the core lightweight hoodie, which has a built-in mask, or you could also wear the Apex system, which has a built-in mask, or the Fanatic uh, hoodies as well have built-in masks. But those are always going to happen and then I also really really like the bino harness um, I use that all the time my rangefinder is attached using one of our magnet systems to my right uh, chest 
my Noctuid is in the outer right pocket, wind checker on the outer left pocket, on my inside I've got a mouth call on the inside right pocket and I have my face paint stick on the inside left pocket. Um, other than that, the other piece that I have with me all the time, even in non-hunting scenarios, is I have the Sitka Shake Dry Jacket. It's probably my favorite Sitka product overall. Um, it's this super thin, ultimate, lightweight jacket that you can crumble into a ball. You could probably stuff it into a pop can. I have it with me. It's black, so... Um, from a hunting point of view, if you had to have it and you didn't have rain gear for a top, you could actually put this on underneath one of your camo layers. Um, but I always have it with me when I travel. If I'm, if I fly somewhere and it's a little chilly on the plane, I put this on. If it's raining or damp or windy, wherever I'm going, I'll put it on. It's super packable. It feels really good on your skin. It's super breathable. It's arguably, in my opinion, one of the most technical products that Sitka makes. And I'm a huge advocate of that. So, Hopefully that helps you out, dude. Um, let's see here. Dpark09. Tips for a, for a beginner coming out west to hunt mule deer. So a lot can go into this. We can go pretty deep into mule deer hunting. The one thing that I'll tell you that I've learned from mule deer is most of the time they do have similarities in their behavior pattern. So if it's not the rut and it's this time of the year, one of the things that I would recommend is when you first get eyes on the mule deer in the morning, you really have to determine whether or not they're in a place that is super favorable for you to make a quick move on them. The likelihood of you being close enough to be able to make a move and get in position quickly is probably pretty minimal. So with that said, <clears throat> I'm a big advocate of making sure your muleys are bedded down and in a fixed location before you make a plan of attack. <coughs> and by the way, I'm still not over my Alberta sickness and I can feel a coughing fit coming up. So I apologize if that happens. That's why I'm actually drinking some coffee right now some knocked and loaded coffee so what I like to do for mule deer spot them stay away keep your distance follow them as long as you can try to bed them down once they're bedded down <coughs> try to determine what you can do to be able to make a move using the terrain and the wind a lot of times mule deer are going to bed down with the wind at their back and they're going to be facing the same direction as the wind. Um, that's what makes it challenging. So a lot of times your angle of attack can't be directly from the back. You kind of have to learn to flank, so to speak. So if you can ever have a spotter or have someone, if you're hunting with a partner, <coughs> dang it that can keep eyes on that buck um, that's going to be critical for him to be able or her to be able to keep eyes on the deer you can always um, communicate via hand signals 
and try to maneuver with hand signals but you definitely need to try to keep eyes on them because a lot of times when you bet them down with the ungulation of the terrain it looks a lot different once you're in there versus what you saw from afar um, so being able to have someone kind of hand signal or navigate you in is critical but otherwise <clears throat> let them bed down get into a position where you're able to not necessarily be on your belly the whole time coming in use um, what I've always called as a blocker um, but my buddy Andy calls it dead space um, I don't call it dead space just because I want something between our space but what you're trying to do is you're trying to if you're gonna make a move on let's just say a mule deer is bedded out in the middle of an alfalfa field if you have the ability to put one big round bale of hay between you and it as you close that distance then utilize that because then you don't have to worry about the deer slightly turning its head and all of a sudden seeing you out of its peripheral vision. So anytime you can use some type of a blocker to essentially block their eyesight from yours, um, then you're able to peek around that and you're able to maneuver and close distance without having to be flat to the ground. Um, so use dead space. Always, always think about the wind. Um, and then try to move if it's noisy try to move when there's natural wind or rain or let's just say you know for example in in uh, Hawaii when I stock Axis there's an airport right there and airplanes are coming and going so when Rogan and I were stalking we moved a lot when the when there was like air cover so the airplane likes kind of going over the top where there's a loud engine you know to to cover the noise of you crunching ground as you pursue um, all that stuff is super critical and honestly regardless of whether it's mule deer or anything else that right there will take you a long way when it comes to spot and stock uh, let's see Chris Pinchaka. <laughs> I don't know if it's Chris Pinch, C-A, maybe you're from Canada, uh, asking 125 grain broadhead with a 75 grain outsert or a 200 grain broadhead with no outsert. So here's the thing. Don't get crazy on front of center. People are taking this way too far, and I can tell you that most of the 100 grain heads are just going to have way better flight characteristics than these heads that are very, very heavy and larger. Um, you really don't need to get too extreme on the FOC. I know there's some people that are promoting it. Um, I, on the other hand, feel like it's starting to get excessive. I can tell you that I shoot 50 grains in the front. Uh, of my arrows with 100 grain heads and I've not had any problems with them. I feel like if you have a total of 150 grains in the front then I'm an advocate of that. 
Um, if you choose to go heavier, that's certainly up to you. For some people, you have the ability to because you have the ability to go to heavier spine arrows to make up for that super heavy point weight. But from my point of view, having the speed that I need to where I'm not having to be within two exact yards um, because of the amount of drop that arrow is going to have um, is very important to me. Um, I feel like I'm way more likely to have to compensate for an animal taking one or two extra steps and I'm not really wanting to have to reset my sight because my arrow is going so slow that I have to do that. Um, I feel like the, the advantages of that versus the advantages that a higher FOC will give you in a wind situation, I really feel like my needle still favors an adequate front of center, which in my opinion is 120 to 150 grains total front weight. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I feel like people are just going way too far with these setups and they're really not, they're really not trying all the different options out there to see how they truly weigh out in an entire pool of options versus just saying, oh, well, I always shot an aluminum insert with a 100 grain head, and this is kind of how these arrows grouped. Now I'm shooting 200 grains, and it's just way better. Yeah, it, it may be, but there also could be a middle ground, and I'm an advocate of the middle ground. I like to have the advantages of both. I like to have some advantages of speed. I like to have some advantages of a decent FOC number but also keep in mind you mentioned outsert so one of the reasons why I'm not an outsert advocate is just because total arrow length to me one it starts to affect spine at my draw length I start to quickly run out of arrow options if I'm adding an inch and a half total length to my arrow because the longer that arrow span um, the more that arrow is essentially going to flex with the same amount of uh, poundage put onto that arrow so in other words when you're looking at a spine chart if you're total arrow length is 30 inches because you've got outserts and then this long 200 grain broadhead that total length is probably going to start to become a disadvantage versus versus being able to shoot an arrow where you don't have that outsert maybe you can cut it at 28 and a half you've got a, a short compact 100 grain head but you've got a 50 grain internal insert to where now you do have that front end load but your FOC is actually doing a little bit more for you because your overall length isn't as high and in most cases when it comes to wind drift horizontal drift a lot of what is effect you know affects that is your total length of the projectile as well as the diameter and weight of that projectile so i've always been at a slight disadvantage for my left and right wind drifting because my arrows are always longer than most of the competitive field that I've shot against in competition. I always had to learn to aim a little bit further off because my arrow itself was longer and there was just more overall mass um, 
in the air being affected by that crosswind. So by shortening that and having a diameter, which that's why I'm an advocate of the five millimeter arrows. I like the smaller diameter of the five millimeter, but I really like the componentry of the five millimeter versus the four millimeter. Um, and if I had to add an outsert on there, again, I'm having to add extra overall length now. And I just am not that big of a fan of that. You know, I've, I can tell you why I can, you know, other people can argue it. I, you know, I'm just to the point now where all I can say is, listen, I've, I pick what I shoot because on all these things that I go to, I just know what works for me and what puts stuff down. And I think if you were to add up like numbers of tags notched and numbers of animals on the ground, if you were to add that into your factor of who you're going to listen to out there, I think that there is a very, very, very small pool of people that are going to be able to give you the numbers of examples and situations where their product of choice has worked compared to what I can 100% vouch for. Um, there's absolute reasoning behind why I shoot what I shoot. Not all my shots are perfect. And I can tell you that I, I go with things that that bail me out of trouble. I go with things that allow me to pull off crazy shot angles. I go with things that let me make longer shots than I even tell you guys about. And I don't know any other way to say it, but if you want to factor in what people recommend and what people give you for opinions, I think, you know, if it were me and I was asking someone's opinion on something, and especially if it was in a field where I wasn't necessarily an expert, I would look at, for example, let me just, let me just say it like this. There's a lot of people out there that give reviews on skydiving equipment. I mean, I can, you know, Andy, my buddy Andy Stumpf does not, you know, go out and give open reviews of, of skydiving equipment. But I can tell you that even if someone out there that's got 800 jumps is highly recommending something, I'm still going to talk to the person who can say, listen, I've got 20,000 jumps. And have did I use that sometimes? Yes. Does it work? Yes. Is there still a reason why I've gone back to this? Yes. Um, can I 100% tell you why? Is there like, you know, hard evidence maybe but all I can tell you is from my experience and career of being at X amount of drop zones and seeing X amount of jumps all I can tell you is this is still what I use and for me and how I look at things that has way more value than someone that has a nifty product review page or someone that's maybe getting one or two of their very first sponsorships and they're trying to do a bang up job of promoting something to the point where they can be paid by one person. I just feel like at some point from a consumer point of view, 
you really need to just go with who you see shooting products for a very long amount of time without issues and I can tell you I continue to shoot what I shoot and I continue to promote and now offer to you guys the the exact things that I shoot for the sole purpose of hey I want to make sure you can get it I want to make sure you can try it this is exactly what I try I've shot uh let's see I've shot uh elk mule deer mule deer whitetail uh antelope this year and about half of those have been with a no collar the other half have been with a tripan all of them have been with the uh knock on axis with 50 grains of brass in the front and the bar number five on the front um, for all those setups here in this earlier season um, i've shot the max 23 vein last year i shot the max stealth vein um, and then I'm shooting the nocturnal knock and they are absolutely flattening stuff. Um, the shot that I made on my antelope, you'll see soon in a few weeks, uh, crazy wind, probably 35, 40 mile an hour crosswinds. Uh, he was coming across walking from right to left. The wind was moving left to right. Um, so I was literally holding on the front leg as he was walking pulling made my shot and with the camera we're able to slow things down um, about maybe a second before that arrow got there the antelope was you know literally dipping down and lunging to dart off and uh, we I mean we took him by surprise he had no idea we were there and all of a sudden boom there's the shot and he was lunging to take off my arrow hit him dead in the center of you know the body pretty much right at the back far back rib um to most people would be like oh that's back the literally the buck went exactly 59 yards bedded straight down and expired uh, I can tell you that right there is a perfect example, one, of why I was shooting the vein combination that I was shooting, because in those crazy crosswinds, which I always experience out west during this month, um, I need that. Um, the other thing is I did shoot them with uh, a tripan uh, for that particular one, but then fast forward two days later, I shot my whitetail at 50 yards with a no collar total blow through pass through uh you know went 40 yards done the elk that i shot in alberta uh hit him high in the shoulder blades absolutely just flattened him to the ground just shell shocked him even though it was through the shoulder blades and then uh, my mule deer in utah was the exact same thing it just the amount of energy being delivered and dispersed through those shoulder blades just floored him uh, with that cutting diameter, just, you know, couldn't be happier, could not be happier with the setup. So, um, I would just, I'm not going to discourage you to not use what might be working for you. I would just give you the recommendation of maybe try something else, see how much it tight, see how much your pin gaps, 
uh, change. You know, it's nice to be able to it's nice to be able to fit a 20 to 60 yard pin gap within your pins and still be able to see the top of your scope housing underneath your level, have all those pins in between. And then also the further you go in your distance, not having to have your sight so low that it's barely clearing your arrow. And also the slower your speeds as that sight comes further and further and further down on your rail, you know, it gets a lot harder for your anchor point to feel consistent when you're having to look so low through the peep sight. So hopefully that stuff helps you out. Uh, appreciate it, Chris. Uh, let's see here. Riley Libby 11. Uh, what are the basic tools someone should have for home at, uh, for bow tuning at home? Obviously a bow press is going to be key. Allen wrench set, uh, a pair of needle nose pliers for sure. Um, a, a set of e-clip tools uh, is essential. A razor blade, in my opinion, um, there's really two different types of serving thread you should have. We offer both of them on the Knock on Archery website. Um, the 3D as well as um, the 62 uh, braid and either a .018 or a .021. Um, and then a serving jig. You should always have like a serving uh, jig to put your to put your spool in, um, and and then also ha having one that's short enough to where you can actually serve on your bow and clear your cables, uh, which is why the one that we have is designed with that type of height. Um, so I think those are probably the main things. Uh, if you can learn to serve, tie in your peep. Uh, if you have an e-clip tool to where you can remove your cams, you have to have a bow press. Uh, tying a D-loop is going to be easiest with a set of needle nose pliers. Uh, and then having a lighter. Other than that, uh, a fletching jig uh, and an arrow saw. And let's see. And then a, a torch for putting in your points and your inserts. If you've got that, you'll be pretty much good to go. Uh, let's see. Underscore Joe Hester. Did you look between the couch cushions? Let's see here. What do I got? Nope. Don't have anything. Don't have anything. It's a fairly new couch in here. Shades is chilling right next to me. She's laying down. Uh, but, yep, nothing in this couch. We're good to go. Um, a lot of the couches in the hunting camps I've been in, on the other hand... <clears throat> I probably would not look. It would be scary what would be in there. All right, let's see here. Saddle hunting. Have you drank the Kool-Aid yet? This is from Bikes and Bucks. Um, so I talked a little bit about saddle hunting. Um, I did it years and years ago. Um, and honestly, being from the South, we've done some form of saddle hunting. Um I've got a pair of I've got a pair of lineman's uh, climbing spurs that I've had for I'm guessing 20 to 25 years um, down south. A lot of times we would just have a super small lock on. My uncle still hunts this way. Uh, put on our lineman's spurs. Literally strap them on our legs. You've got spurs on the inside of your feet, just like you would. Um, 
just like a turkey would and you throw your lineman's belt around the tree and you just run up the tree like a logger and throw a, a really small platform up there and you're able to to kind of hunt on the move fairly quick um, a lot of times we use very small platforms because they are easy to carry. Um, at one time, Lone Wolf actually made a very small saddle type system. It was a platform that was, um, I don't know, probably about the size of my two feet together square. Um, and then they made a harness system where it was a full capture under the, under the back of the legs saddle type system. Uh, I used that quite a bit. I'm trying to think last time I hunted out of that um, in some spots in public land in Wisconsin, I think back in 2006 and 7. And I used them a lot actually for winter coyote hunting. Um, if I'm ever out coyote hunting on full moons, a lot of times I'll take my tree spurs, I'll run up a tree, and then put that you know essentially strap in with a saddle type system um, I don't have the tree saddle brand necessarily I have like a big lineman's harness that I can just lean back on so I'll throw my tether around the top of the tree clip in and then I'll go ahead and turn my collar on and I actually coyote hunt on full moons or predator hunt on full moons out of tree saddles so um, personally I feel like there's an application for it for me and how I'm hunting right now. I don't personally have an application for it in regards to whitetail simply because one, I'm almost, I'm always filming. So, you know, there's a ton of crap you have to plan for with that. Two, most of the places that I've been, I've been to long enough to where I actually have stuff that's either trees are already pegged or I have setups where I'll go in get in there uh, a day or two before the hunt starts get my setups to where I know where the you know I know where a stand needs to go I know where the camera guy stand needs to go um, and then when it comes to where I hunt here in Iowa uh, most of the spots that I'm hunting I already have stands or blinds uh, allocated for those areas and those all went up uh, a couple months ago food plots also well food plots went in about a month ago um, so clover clover just got mowed um, pretty much is right up at the top nipped the top of the the flowers off on clover about 10 days ago and I don't know that's where it's at but I have definitely saddle hunted. Uh, don't really have a use for it right now. I think there's times where you do. Whether or not you feel like that's something you can sit all day in, I guess that's up to you. But if you need something where you can be mobile quick, then yeah, consider it. Um, but you know there are other options too. Um, you know a set of a set of really good rapid rails um, or you know quick sticks and a, and a lock-on um, are also super effective you know I've been able to do a lot of hunts just throwing up four sets of sticks throwing a lock-on up there and you know rocking and rolling if you have a good stand that allows you to level and kind of set your angle even on a halfway crooked tree then you're good to go 
let's see here. How to kill this is from B Shaymaker seventy five and then also Team FMJ nineteen eighty jumped in on this too. Um and actually uh Team FMJ nineteen eighty text me a picture of his farm. I might pull that up right now. So this question is, how to kill a deer when the farmer next to you plants 70 acres of oats? How do I get the deer back on my property? Okay, first off, 70 acres is not enough to hold a deer. Um, 70 acres, you know, depending on how it's laid out, it's, you know, virtually two 40-acre squares, those deer will 100% not be contained within that amount of space. Um, They really won't. So what my recommendation to um, Tim is, or was, because I wasn't able to to have a full conversation with him when he first sent me this question, um, and I'm looking it up here. There you are. There you are, Tim. So looking up. Okay, so you're you're sending me this picture. Uh, the way his picture's laid out, uh, there's roughly, I don't think that's a full, I don't think that's a, a full 80 acres of oats, but there's quite a bit of oats. Um, and then I would say 340 degrees around, there's some type of a timber that's surrounding this field um honestly dude based on what you sent me i like the layout of where you're at much more than that open field um those those fields are going to be ultra productive very early and very late and that limits the amount of time and when it comes to the very early part the very early part, which is kind of what we referred to in the very first part of this podcast, the very early part is a time where even though there's stuff coming and going to food, that doesn't mean it's doing it in the daylight hours. And I know Tim's in um, Illinois, so I'm not sure uh, where you're at, B. Shaymaker, um, but during once October rolls around your likelihood of having a really mature deer staying in daylight hours for like an entire week is pretty minimal now there's going to be times where that moon is rising before the sun is falling to where that evening movement is going to be maximized and those are the days where being on that food source early can can be productive however there's a higher chance that that deer is actually coming to that food source later than he is right during bright daylight hours once it's october 1st so i really like those transition areas and like i said a lot of times having that pressure on those fields and especially if your neighbor isn't wise about how they hunt and say they you know they get in there and it gets dark and then all of a sudden they're coming down out of their tree they're shining their light around and that deer is you know maybe he's in a staging up process and he's not quite to the field but he's there and he senses okay there's 
obviously human presence here and it's going to push them a little bit more nocturnal and then if it happens again it's a little bit nocturnal and then honestly by the third time it's over um, the way this particular farm that I got sent this picture of lays out there's a lot of areas where there's pinch points and things tighten down um, I really like those bucks are rarely in the wide open um, they really like travel corridors and they like to be able to transition between so for me personally um, just looking at this I would be way more likely to only hunt the food sources on the edge or try to catch something out in the open feeding um, either when the moon is perfect when that and that is when that moon is coming up before the sun is falling um, so I would try it then um, if the wind was perfect definitely earlier in the season or again if they're standing crop late in the season otherwise I really like the cover I like the transition areas and I like the perimeters of the bedding areas and you got to remember the likelihood of a big buck just being out feeding in an open field like that especially this particular one there's a road on the north end of it um, so there's going to be traffic there I'm going to say this buck is more likely to stage up on some of the back corners of this field and wait until that last minute of daylight uh, before he's going to appear so I really like those fingers and the neck downs and the thicker timber that's leading to that point. Um, and then, you know, and then maybe even trying to get them coming from there in the morning, like taking the farthest way around the back of it and keeping the wind favorable and getting close to that bedding area and for you know maybe there's a day where the conditions are right where you have just a little bit of wind you can you know your sound is going to be masked the wind is good coming from that field into your face back in the bedding and just taking that chance you know especially as we get closer to that third week of October when these bucks are really going to be marking their area and spending some time on their feet in those later on in the mornings marking their areas and kind of covering their their local bedding and rutting turf um, they're going to be back in there more than out on that field so if you can find that day where the conditions are right to slip into the back door and just say you know what i'm just going to go you know i'm going to go right into that right into that that bedding area the the conditions are right i'm going to slip in there and i'm going to hunt this thing all the way until 11 12 o'clock in the morning and dedicate to spending half of a morning in there and that way if the buck comes in and you see him obviously you have the chance for the encounter um, but you're also there long enough to realize okay the buck isn't in here you know if you go in there and try to hunt for two you know one or two hours sometimes those bucks will actually bed down close to the edge of those fields they'll wait for things to settle in the morning then they'll get up mid-morning and then finish their their cruise back to that bedding area so if you can dedicate a full half a morning to it then try to 
pick the right conditions, pick the right day, and slip into that bedding area and try to catch them coming from that food source. But honestly, if I were to if I were to to take a preference and the three things that I had to choose from were food, water, or cover, which all three of those are things that are going to be essential to a whitetail <coughs> or anything else in that matter. The cover is always going to have that animal there for the longest amount of time. The water is going to be the shortest. The food is going to be next. The bedding or the cover is going to be where they will be for the highest majority of their time. So keep that in mind. Uh, let's see here. Bowhunting underscore Swede. Single pin or multiple pin in a stressful hunting situation. Multiple pin all day long. <coughs> yeah, single pins are an accident waiting to happen. If you're hunting rutting whitetail, if you're hunting moving elk, in especially in situations where they aren't really fixed, listen, there's, there's situations <clears throat> where I hunt where I know the conditions are, they're very predictable. And those are places where I've hunted a long time. I know where the animals move. I know where they stop. I know where they feed. And I'm, I'm planning my whole strategy based on that. But there's also times where during the, the whitetail rut, I'm going and getting in a stand in some thick stuff. And I can't tell you whether a deer's going to come from the north, south, east, or west. I know where the majority will come from. But the reality is it's the rut and they're going to come from all kinds of different directions and they're going to stop and they're going to go and they're going to stop and they're going to go. And in those situations, I have to be able to just range a, a multiple number of targets, know where my pin, what pin I need to be in certain areas or certain shooting lanes. And I have to be able to just act on the fly. Uh, to have to, for example, the elk I shot, <clears throat> or let's just change that. Well, the mule deer I shot first, first animal of the year, the mule deer I shot, uh, the mule deer was at 60 first range. I was ranging what was in front of me where I assumed he was going to go, uh, which I got a range of 49 Ranged another bush right behind that, which was 52. Uh, went back to range in the mule deer, ranged him at like 55, then I ranged him again at 53, then I ranged, like I said, the bush that was a little bit closer to me, 49, the one that was behind it was 52. And so I just drew back and I knew, okay, uh, if he comes in front of that one bush, I'm going to have to be 50 yard pin underneath him. You know, if he comes, and, and honestly, I'm trying to range look with my binoculars at the same, you know, range a few things, drop my rangefinder, raise my binoculars, look for limbs or overhangs, drop my binoculars, range again, um, going through my shot process, getting myself oriented. And I was able to draw back and just be all framed up with my peep and my, my pins in that 
in that sight picture and let that buck step in and luckily he stepped in um, right behind the 49 yard uh, bush that I had ranged but in front of the one that was 52 put my 50 yard pin on him you know bam now if he would have came in front of that and I had a fixed sight which honestly going from he was at 60 to like 56 or 54 where would I have put that pin like where would I have where would I have rolled that dial to stopped been able to still do my ranging then draw him back and let's just say he hits that lane but turns slightly to me for two yards then turns again at that point you're guessing you really are um Whereas if you practice with fixed pins, you really start to learn where you need to hold for a 49-yard shot with your 50-yard pin or vice versa. With a single pin, you honestly start to have a little bit of a crutch to where I don't think people truly practice enough. And if you do have a single pin sight, then this is an exercise that's critical to you improving enough to be able to maximize your efficiency with that sight is really understanding, okay, if I'm going to use my 50-yard pin at 47 yards, where does it hit? How high does it hit? How low does it hit? Um, Learning that stuff is critical. Now, to add to that, earlier we were talking about super heavy FOC and very front-heavy arrows, which overall, honestly, adds total arrow weight, which slows arrow speed down which widens pin gaps so this margin of error is now even more magnified so once again all this stuff starts to factor in I shoot this arrow that has decent FOC but also has adequate speed and on top of that I have a pin setup that has multiple pins it's closer I set my multiple pins a closer to my bow than what my sight extension bar allows me to um, I'm not all the way out to where my pin gap is super wide I'm a little bit closer together to where if that buck all of a sudden makes a slight turn well, I'm still able to get two pins on that animal and be able to to split that gap versus being guessing in space, so to speak. Um, So I'm a big advocate of learning multiple pins. I don't like having too many to where it's cluttered. You know, I like four or five pins at the max with the ability to move the entire setup. Um, Hopefully that helps you out. Next question here is from underscore Stephen King underscore. Uh, How tightly should the knock fit the string? So I like the knock to make a slight click when it clicks on, but I also like to be able to roll the string inside of the throat of that knock. So if you take a knock uh, and clip it onto your string, when you roll that string left and right is the knock trying to turn that arrow left and right as well um, or is it able to freely spin within the throat of that knock Um, that's absolutely critical and you don't want it so loose to where when you draw back it's ready to to fall off and and fall down so I like to hear a click but I like to be able to to freely roll that serving in the throat of the knock 
uh, gravy.davy. If you just got a silverback and you're struggling with it, but you've never shot your knock to it better now, has the silverback done its job? Um, Yes. So, again, all the releases have a place. They all have an application. And part of the reason why you hear me at times say, you know, sometimes I teach students always warm up with a silverback you know get your first you know go out and hit that blank bail warm up with a silverback make some executions because it really forces you through the dynamics of pulling through now with the silverback some of the things that are absolutely critical um, you know make sure if you're shooting a lot or especially for example right now in the conditions that I've hunted in over the last several weeks um, severe weather changes going from super hot, humid outside into an air conditioned camp, uh, tons of rain. You have to dry out these releases. So I hunted in the rain, like I'm talking inches of rain in multiple hours. My releases, even my backup releases were just soaked. I was shaking water out of them. So I got in the car turn on the defroster, cranked it all the way to high and set my releases up in the dash of my my uh of my truck and let them ride up there for 30 minutes just literally to the point where they were hot to the touch but completely dried out. Uh absolutely critical. Um it you know, you can watch the video uh knock on release maintenance. Uh we've got that on the Knock on Archer YouTube channel. Uh, watch the the maintenance video on how to you know put a drop oil on a silverback, how to properly blow air um, to and fro on your knock to it, put a drop of oil in there, blow that oil through it, then take the air, make it one more shot, one direction, one more shot out, um, and you know kind of prep those releases so that they're not getting condensated. Um, the other thing too is with your silverback, yeah, technique, form, posture, these are all critical to how easy or how difficult that release is going to be to use. And one of the things that's hardest for me is I can't dedicate time all year long to coaching videos and doing this stuff because I tr- really try to cycle times a year where I'm really focused on teaching you guys technique and, 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 you know, indoor training and getting back on track and then field tactics and then try to give you some hunting, you know, to kind of help the excitement along. So I try to cycle through all this stuff. So it gets hard to be able to not do this all the time, but with the silverback, a common question I get, and I got it today, um, from one of my buddies, uh, Ryan Mitchler asked, uh, he said, you know, with my silverback, I hit, I impact just a little bit different than my knock to it. Do you think I should move my sight? And if you're dedicating yourself to the silverback, absolutely. Regardless of what release you're shooting, sight in with the release you have. Um, what can cause this is, one, how hard you're pulling on it. Some people have their silverback set to where they're pulling extremely hard to get it to fire. The more comfortable and the more your muscle 
connection with your mind starts to hone in on understanding this, the more consistent you are with your tension on your back wall and the more you're able to lower that that pulling poundage on your silverback, you're able to lower that number to where maybe you're only pulling to three and a half pounds over before it's firing versus having to pull with five to seven. Um, because if you're pulling super, super, super hard on your wall, on some bows, the harder you pull on the back wall, you can slightly change, you know, your cam position or how your cam's pulling onto that cable. And it can slowly or seldomly change your impact point. On some bows, some cam positions, um, pulling the bow further back one time versus the next time can slightly change how that knocking point is affected and so it could also slightly change the impact point. If you have your limbs backed out to where your string tension is weaker or your string tension is is kind of spongier so to speak then it'll also start to change your impact points if you're pulling super super hard one time and not very hard another time so for people that are shooting a knock to it if you're just sitting in the valley and then punching the trigger you're going to get a completely different impact point versus dynamically pulling through that shot like your silverback forces you to do so it shows you those inconsistencies but definitely make sure that you sight in with the release that you're using and you know sight in with exactly how you're going to be taking something to the field and that goes for your broadheads goes for your release type uh, etc <coughs> but if you're really comfortable shooting your knock to it and you feel like you can shoot your knock to it well um, but you know when you go up and you warm up in the morning you know, sometimes being forced to to be super dynamic and really just get that mind kind of working on, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do here. I'm supposed to pull through, pull through, you know, my shot's breaking, but I want to continue my follow through, get that release hand over the shoulder. You know, do that for 20 shots or 30 shots with your silverback. And then if you go back to your knock to it, as long as that shot, if you were videoing yourself from... 10 feet away if the activation and your follow-through on both of those shots look the exact same then go with what works for you uh let's see here pearson dabney uh is asking how the trigger changed your life um i'm wanting to get the new pro series 525 is the wi-fi worth it for sure the new Pro Series by far and the new D2 drive systems are by far the best. Um, honestly, when I'm going to friends' houses or old camps where they have the older units, um, just seeing the difference between my new unit versus those, um, there's a few that few people where I've just wanted to get them a new one as a thank you gift because it's like, these things are, are so awesome. The ability for, you know, if you open the lid, close the lid, for, for that thing to ramp up and get that temperature back uh, is pretty dang awesome. But uh, I can't say enough about um, 
how Traeger changed my life. Honestly, it was 100% a life changer. It's very rare that Sharon and I are in a camp together or cooking somewhere where we don't talk about this. And, you know, Sharon doesn't say, yeah, ever since, you know, that very first time we got a Traeger, we rarely cook inside anymore. And honestly, we rarely cook inside. Um, we, everything, I almost everything we make now is on the Traeger, no question. And it gives, it gives you the ability to, to just make better food and also to be able to not have to be so on top of timing too. Um, it's really hard to overcook something on one. You kind of really have to be spacing out, um, in order to overcook on it, but it it's awesome. Uh, it's definitely a life changer and I can't say enough about it. If I were to give you a few tips, um, it would just be, if you're not using it all the time, you know, make sure you always keep your pellets dry. Just think of your pellets just like firewood. Think of your Traeger just like a campfire pit. Um, every time you go through a full bag of pellets, it's time for you to clean out the, the small little cooking pot which is where your pellets are going in to fire up. Um, so make sure you vacuum that out completely every time you go through a bag of pellets. The other thing is always make sure you run the shutdown cycle uh, when you're ready to turn it off. What's important about that is the shutdown cycle essentially stops the gear from putting wood pellets onto the fire that's already going. And what it does is it just blows air onto that fire and lets it fully extinguish itself out and minimize the ash and soot in that that pot. Because it's just like, if you can imagine um, having a campfire pit or a, or a fire barrel, and the last time you were using it, you know, if someone, if you had like 15 logs in there and they were burning really good, but everyone was ready to go in and you just went out there and dumped water on it, um, the next time you go to get that started, you've got this burn barrel filled with a bunch of half burn, half wet soot, and it it's not a good fuel source, so you have to clean that out. Um, however, if you would have just let that burn all the way down uh, until it was completely burned down, then you just have a minimal amount of ash on the bottom. That's a much different situation. So the shutdown cycle blows air until it fully burns out the pellets to where you just have minimal ash. Uh, however, like I said, about every bag of pellets, there will be enough accumulative ash, even if you run the shutdown cycle properly, to where it starts to take up space in that cook pot. So in other words, you're can't your fire barrel doesn't have as much fuel source in it because some of the space is taken up with ash so cleaning that out just makes a world of difference so keep your pellets dry make sure you run the shutdown cycle suck out the pot every time you go through a full bag of pellets and you're going to be totally happy with that purchase no doubt about it um Let's see. Uh, Wicked Pizza 316. So, what's the longest you've been in the country with a harvest or without one? Hmm. That's hard to say. So, 
you know, there's times where things are going good and there's times where things don't go good. Um, and for example, uh, I have a, an elk, a Montana elk tag sandwich I ate last week. Uh, I went out elk hunting. I actually had an elk tag, had a deer tag, had an antelope tag. Uh, one, the antelope tag was for South Dakota. The deer and elk, uh, elk tag were for the Montana side. So I was trying to focus on, um, I found the deer first. So I focused on deer uh, in the morning and evening. And I was sitting all day uh, in the middle of the day for antelope. Uh, took several days before I was finally able to make slight adjustments and reposition to get the antelope. Um, then I had actually figured that I had to put enough pressure on those mule deer that I found to where they had changed their pattern and I had to sit where I didn't even see any. So I thought, okay, I've been in and out of this field too many times. You know, they've smelled me a few times, like there's enough pressure. They've changed their pattern. So then I went to elk hunting and, uh, hunted for myself. I think one time I had a cow, only a cow tag. Um, so I was trying to locate, uh, a bull just so that I figured any mature bull will have cows with them. So I was trying to locate a bull, um, and tried, had no success. Then, um, ended up, uh, meeting a guy that was from Minnesota who had never shot a, a good backcountry bull with his bow. So I offered to, to take him out and call for him, um, and kind of put his bull in, in front of my cow tag, so to speak. Um, and then we had an awesome hunt, had several encounters. He actually had a shot, um, at the beginning of the day, uh, hit a limb and deflected, ended up missing the bull. And then we got back on, um, I'm not sure if it was that bull or another group, uh, several, several hours later, um, just got poured on, soaked on and, hunted a whole bunch and then on the you know we kind of finally got to the point where we called it quits um weren't going to catch up with the elk so on the way out um ended up running into a whitetail like 50 yards off one of these forest roads and i was able to make a shot and get that but uh then tried for uh tried two more hunts for a cow elk and no success so um success isn't always doesn't always happen um and i don't know it's it's hard to say i can tell you um for my mountain grizz i think i had um 60 to 70 days uh put in before i finally was able to to get a shot at one so um i've had i've had probably 20 to 30 days easy into moose hunting uh without oper without opportunity um, and then when it comes to whitetails, hey, I mean, yeah, I've been pretty fortunate to shoot a couple whitetails every November, but, you know, that also goes with uh, 13 hours a day times 30 days uh, to normally make that pan out. So uh, it adds up. You know, you have to put time in the saddle. Um, you just have to go. Those days in the antelope blind, uh, I shot my buck at I think 1 30 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon definitely not a time when most people th there was no one else out hunting 
in my area. Everybody, I seen people driving up and down the roads. I seen hunters driving up and down the roads. I know there was hunters um, in the local town uh, eating lunch at the bar. I was kind of like wishing um, someone would deliver some food to me. And then finally, the dang buck grabs his harem and goes to, you know, I set up, I think I set up about um, 60 yards from this corner post on this uh, rancher's field where I had seen some antelope kind of swinging wide of this this 90 degree uh, corner in a in a cattle fence and I ended up setting up my blind um, kind of right by a power pole that was 60 yards from that and was just hoping that they would come behind me on the good wind side and 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 kind of follow that around looking for a place to get through the fence and sure enough that's what happened but it happened at a time of day where most people weren't in the field so just goes to show you that's how it has to happen uh paul v ho um asking what's the word on the strings so the word on the strings is right next door to us uh you know, approximately 20 yards away. Uh, the new building for Knock on Strings is being um, constructed. So uh, we are getting really close. Uh, machines are b- about wrapped up. Uh, building will soon be ready, and we're going to commence. Uh, we'll definitely come out of the gate slow. Um, going to focus on probably a very specific number of bows or model bows probably the the highest selling models for the major bow companies first um what i will tell you is it's i'm not going to focus on doing uh a whole bunch of uh colors out of the gate you know i'm going to make what i feel is the best string available on the market Uh, i'm going to be confident of that otherwise you're not going to be able to buy it. And uh, once that's available, then we'll be going. So, but I can tell you that, yeah, we're we're nine months into processes, trial and errors, me rejecting certain processes, me rejecting certain machines that are available to the masses, uh, me ev- rejecting certain materials and working specifically uh, with companies for materials that I need, as well as, uh, having a super, uh, kick-ass partner for building the machines that I need. And thank you, Johnny. You're awesome. And, uh, yeah, being a hundred percent confident of bringing the right thing to the market. So they'll be coming. Ideally, I want to have them up and rolling uh before we start doing target builds uh later you know closer to winter so we're working on it and i'll definitely make sure we're rolling so be ready uh let's see here Uh, alfred text or text i can't stop shaking when i'm holding on the target shooting back tension i was fine when i punched the trigger but I can't beat the shakes with the silverback. So, and then also someone else liked that as well. Um, okay, so there's a couple different things here. There can be shakes from anxiety, 
and shakes from tension, which honestly, um, anything that's, that's anxiety related or essentially mentally related, what I can tell you is acclimation is your best friend. So it's no different than, um, it's no different than getting in a pool. You know, you step into a pool that's cold. It feels really cold when you first get in there. Same when it's, you know, if something's hot, you know, if you, if you fill up your bathtub, even though by the time you're in a bathtub and you're soaking in it, it's at one temperature. But if that's the temperature you have your bath at when you first try to put your toes in there, uh, it just feels like it's scalding hot. But the reality is, um, as you ease into it, you can acclimate to it. So with these releases and with these different ways of shooting, the acclimation is time, dedicated time to actually applying yourself to building a comfort level with this stuff. Um, what I can tell you is when I ha- when I had target panic, it took me years, years of shooting a back tension release shooting it well and yeah there were times where I was you know I would I would refer to it as you know I feel like I'm shitting pickles that's what I would tell people because I would be shaking because I was essentially I had this fright or I had this fear of not being able to know when this release was going off but it was just like putting my feet into a hot bath eventually I started to realize, hey, actually only good things come when I don't know when this thing's going off. Like the the best arrow placement I have is when I don't know when it goes off. Because when I know when it goes off, most of the time I'm freezing underneath it. I'm having to lift my pin and punch the trigger at the same time in order to try to miraculously time this lift and punch to where my arrow can hit the center but yet when I have this this surprise shot I actually have a better outcome not knowing when it goes off I have to just be uncomfortable in this pocket for a certain amount of time then all of a sudden it goes off and I look down there and I'm surprised because oh my god the arrow's in the middle but that confidence comes with time it comes with acclimation it's something that is very, very hard for me to be able to immediately implement into someone. Now, the the less shots you've had with target panic, the easier this transition is. The reality is, and the sucky part is, most people, the very first time they went into an archery shop, myself included, got a wrist strap wrapped around their, their wrist, you know, they told you to, you know, clip this on your D-loop, pull back, you know, center your P, put your pin in the target. When your pin's on the target, just go ahead and, and hit that trigger. And so it was years and years of pin to the target, hit the trigger. Like that was embedded in my mind. And it was really hard to change that. It was a, it was a, a habit, you know, it was, it was essentially a mental illness because I had this this 
fear of not having control. So I had this, you know, sudden fright or this terror, essentially anxiety, right? Um, And I had to build confidence in understanding that me knowing when it was going to go off was not actually better than me not knowing. Um, There's certainly times where me knowing when it went off maybe was favorable, but there was also way more times where it wasn't and I couldn't count on it. Um, And it was almost like too much of a loose cannon. So being able to make this shot and not really know when it's going to go off yeah, I, I shook for a long time. And there were times where, just like what um, the question earlier about the knock to it versus the silverback, there were times where I would be making great shots. I'd go to dozens of pro tournaments, shoot this back tension release, you know, stand on the podium, win checks, be making, you know, great shots and shoot offs. And then all of a sudden I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to go back to a trigger and I'd go back to a trigger and I would shoot that in practice and I'd shoot it three or four days and be like, oh yeah, man, this feels better than any, anything I could ever do with my back tension release feels so good. And then I go to the tournament, I get out on the practice butts shooting good. Oh yeah, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden I, you know, target one, I pull back, I got a little bit of a little bit of extra stress, a little bit of extra anxiety, and all of a sudden I can feel myself just, <clears throat> that thumb just wants to clinch up on that trigger, and I had to just have the the mental strength to just be like, okay, someone take this thing away from me. I'm not ready for it yet. And I would just hand it to someone and be like, give this thing to me Sunday. Do not let me shoot it. And I'd have to just go back to shoot my back tension. You know, at that time I was shooting a hinge. And just forcing my, you know, in that next shot, I'd pull back and I'd be a little bit nervous, like, okay. And maybe I had to let down and just tell myself, just let down and just tell yourself exactly what I'm saying right now. Not knowing is a better shot. Not knowing is a better shot. Nothing scary is going to happen. The only thing that's going to happen is this arrow is going to go in the middle. And then pull back and just say I'm okay not going only good will happen only good will happen only good and there it goes and then every shot after that gets easier so that's one scenario the next scenario is that you actually have some type of a physical ailment that causes shaking when you apply tension now there's a friend of mine named Thomas that actually had a time where he shot someone else's bow in a um, in an archery shop, and the person who let him try his bow out actually had an arrow that had been hit just previously, and it, and it had been cracked in the front of the arrow. And when he shot, he never inspected the arrow, and the arrow broke, and part of the arrow went through the front of his hand. And ever since then, he had tremors in the the in his front bow arm. Um, since that, now there's other archers. For exa- example, um, there was a, a female archer from Denmark named Camilla that shook 
all the time at full draw. You could just see she always shook. Once she had tension built onto herself, she would just tremor. But she was a world-class shooter, and she was a medal winner, even having those, because she just essentially mentally got to the point where she realized this is something I deal with no matter what. When I'm at full draw, when tension's loaded on me, for whatever reason, her you know, her nerves or whatever just had constant tremors and they were just shaking the entire time. And (laughs) this was even a better example of what I was saying is as long as she just trusted that movement and continued to pull through, the dynamics of a quality surprise archery shot allowed her to be a world-class shooter even with those tremors so that's two different scenarios two different things to consider and two different things that can help you through that so i wish you the best uh let's see here shooter mckevin i have a metal plate in my right wrist are you aware of anyone successfully using a handheld release without use of their wrist i personally do not but what i will say is um for any of you listeners out there if you look at the post that i made uh regarding this podcast it's a post with me holding up a pair of binoculars and i think i say like looking for podcast questions if there's any way you can scroll through those comments to shooter underscore mick mc Kevin. Um, so shooter underscore MC Kevin, um, or shoot him a DM and let him know if there's something that you know about that. Uh, let's see here. B Haynes underscore 1911. You're asking another question. Anything new you're going to try for indoor season? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Can't tell you though. I'll have to save it for indoor season, uh, but you already asked a question. But yes, be some cool stuff coming. Uh, let's see here. Uh, next question is from HMC dot knives. Uh, what's up, Jim? Uh, I have the 2018 Fanatic bibs. Do I feel the 2019 changes merit for the upgrade, dude? Listen, from a noise and a and a sheer temperature point of um point of view they are insanely awesome like i i personally do not know of a better late season system than the fanatic that's available this year for the first time um 100 it's way quieter it's way more functional and it's by far the best late season system ever made, especially one I've ever seen uh, for what that's worth. Uh, let's see here. Marco1492, what string companies do I recommend? I'm going to recommend ours. Uh, just need some time. Um, currently right now, there's just a continual decline in what's coming out of the packages and believe me i order a lot um i order them under an alias i get them in 
try them out. And I also set up a lot of bows for friends that buy strings and cables. And I'm going to try to fill the niche of corners other people are cutting. I guess I'll just say it that way. Um, and we're getting close. Let's see here. Uh, Stefan B13. Um, outside of the box tactics on cold calling for hunting permission in private land. Okay, so to get some permission. One, I wouldn't call. Face-to-face -face is always better than calling. Um, two, honesty. Being upfront and honest, obviously if you're a bow hunter, that increases your odds. Um, if you tell them that you 100% understand a lot of the things that they may have concerns about by letting someone have permission to hunt there. Just tell them that you really will do anything they would ask in relations to respecting their property and um, allowing you to hunt. And just tell them, you know, some of those things would include making sure you always find your arrow, um, making sure they tell you exactly how they want you to access those spots. Let them know you know the importance of not rutting up their their property, uh, not feeling like you're going to tread over their property, asking them specifically where would you like me to park uh, when I come and go just because there's going to be times where I'm coming or going early. Would you like me to, to shoot you a text um, on days prior to me hunting so that you know it's you know my car that pulls up um you know i i think just being very very clear and honest and showing them respect is absolutely critical um calling normally isn't something that's personal um so i would try to make it as personal as possible hard work um normally earns permission not always. I've certainly had have had farmers allow me to do farm work and then dupe me. Um, but it also helps earn things. Um, the spot that I was hunting for antelope um, several years ago, I uh, saw this farmer. He was trying to get hay up uh, before a storm came. Uh, ended up helping him put up a bunch of bales, uh, worked for probably five hours putting up bales. And next thing you know, it opened up a whole new door for conversation. So, um, that is critical. The other thing, unfortunately right now, um, isn't probably what you're going to like to hear, but a lot of times getting permission, um, when it's not peak of the season, um, is helpful. Obviously, being able to to come by and saying, you know, hey, I'd really like to have permission. I know it's summertime and, you know, maybe you have some things where maybe you need some help here. You know, I'm willing willing to help you out. Um, you know, if you've got some, some summer chores or something you want me to do, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to, to get permission and have a, have a place to hunt. Um, all those are great ways to start. Um, so, I think... That right there is probably the perfect spot to end this podcast. Um, I know there's a ton of other questions. Good grief. 
You guys are amazing. How many I've I've starred the these ones um, just so that I can maybe pick up where this left off. Maybe I'll maybe I'll keep going this week with with podcasts um, and kind of see how far I can get. But uh, for now, that was an awesome little start. And thanks so much for giving me the topics to talk about. Um, appreciate the heck out of all of you. And make sure you guys get out and get something for yourself. Make sure you tag me. Tag Knock On Nation. Tag Knock On. If you're out doing awesome stuff with School Knock, tag School Knock. Um, so awesome to see so many posts out there with people getting their first ever animal. I saw the coolest post today I was tagged in. I'm going to try to find this, this picture, uh, actually. So, um, this was really, really cool. Um, I'm going to give you a shout out. So Greg DeGreen, um, posted a picture, um, of a cool raghorn bull. He's got a he's got a hoy knock to it. And he says, What a wonderful experience. My sixty three year old father and I had never even seen the mountains or elk until I decided to do a self guided backcountry hunt in Montana. We backpacked in four miles. I was able to connect on the connect on this raghorn at eighty yards, relocated this bull our last morning. He was a thousand yards away up on a cut. I made my way to him, blowing a cow call. As I went, getting within 200 yards, he turned and crested a knoll. Um, he said, I would said, what the F would Cam Haynes do? He would sprint to the top. So that's what I did, getting to 80 yards, and my arrow met the mark on this double lung pass-through. The real fun began, and it took us 12 hours to pack it out. Thanks for the experience, Dad. You've always been my best friend, my hero, and my mentor. There's no one I'd rather share this experience with than you. 63-year-old man, tougher than most guys half his age. Dude, that's such an awesome story. And the two of you guys on the back of your truck loaded up with coolers full of meat and having a cheers, that is freaking awesome uh there's just so many of these first time hunter experiences that were being tagged in and people thanking the school and knock series for being able to make your first awesome shot i think this is all unbelievable and it's certainly why we keep doing it and i can't thank all of you enough for the motivation so knock on everybody be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com